welcome to the feminist novelist and we'll begin on page number 23 first para i'll read and explain so i request all of you to follow it along with your textbook in hand so that it'll be very clear let's begin obviously late victorian feminism was full of contradictions and conflicts now see Victorian feminism was mainly concentrating upon the elevated uh, sublime concept of uh, motherhood okay so these were women who made maternal instinct the basis of their ideology so everything in life uh, regarding women's existence was centered around maternal instinct so yet many of them were disgusted by sex and terrified by childbirth now this is almost a contradiction because uh, though they were kind of fascinated by maternal instinct and um, motherhood and love and so on they were repulsed by the physical aspect like sex or uh, you know giving birth to a child and so on mrs havis confessed to her journal that upon the birth of her first child she had not felt the surge of maternal ecstasy that she had anticipated now this is a very honest rendition Mrs Havis is uh, admitting in her journal that uh, when she had her first child she had expected a rise of uh, motherly love and so on but what she had expected did not happen i quote even i believe it if the poor little squealer died i do not think i should grieve much after a day or two unquote now what she means is you know if the baby died uh she thinks that she would not cry and be sad over the death of the poor uh screamer uh, maybe uh maximum she would grieve for uh, a day or two now we might think it is brutal but she's being plain honest so of course as linda gordon points out in her study of feminist birth control ideas in united states feminist hostility and fear of sex came from the fact that they were women not that they were feminists now linda gordon is an american historian who uh, did a lot of writing regarding birth control issues and so on so what she points out is that see um, the feminist uh, fear of sex or uh, hostility regarding anything related to that came from the fact that they were quintessentially women and not because they were feminists let's continue victorian ladies were supposed to dislike sex male ignorance the dangers in pregnancy venereal disease and childbearing and the lack of any way to express their own sexual needs made abstinence the only rational response to sexual dilemma many feminists perceived now see apparently victorian ladies were supposed to be delicate and uh, very sensitive and uh, one key factor which they disliked was uh, you know the physical aspect of the sex so male ignorance regarding relationship or uh, whatever dangers a woman faces in pregnancy or uh, the prospect of having a venereal disease uh, through um, uh, contracting uh, during sex and um, uh, the process of giving uh, birth to a child or uh, the lack of uh, uh, a way to express their sexual needs uh, made uh, uh, them feel that keeping away from the act of sex or uh, such processes is the the kind of sensible response to the sexual dilemma which uh, they kind of observed in society 
So um, we uh, come across Annie Besant, who is a British socialist, uh, who uh, was also a theosophist, uh, write a contraceptive handbook called The Law of Population. So it reflects a more practical approach to the same problem. So uh, she writes about uh, human conduct and morals and so on. Now we'll move on to the next uh, paragraph. The veneration of motherhood and maternal love combined with repugnance for the actual process of intercourse and childbirth led to some very peculiar fantasies. Now see, uh, though they uh, kind of worshipped um, the aspect of motherhood or celebrated motherly love, um, there was at the same time a kind of uh, a repulsion or uh, disgust uh, at the actual process of uh, you know, sexual intercourse or childbirth. And this kind of led to a peculiar kind of imagination. Some feminist writers like uh, Lady Florence Dixie and Alex Ethelmer in England and Charlotte Perkins Gilman in the United States imagined world ruled by women feminist revolutions and virgin birth. So their concept was rather radical. So Charlotte Perkins is an American sociologist while um, Florence Dixie and Alice Ethelmer were British. Okay, So Alice Ethelmer is really Elizabeth. And they believed in uh, a world which is predominantly ruled by uh, women uh, feminist uh, revolutions. And uh, they did not actually think about the real process of sex or anything. They discussed uh, virgin births and so on. In Dixie, that is uh, Lady Florence Dixie's Gloriana or the Revolution of 1900, which she wrote in 1890, Gloriana is disguising herself as a boy and as Hector Lestrange, uh, the splendid batsman, bowler, oarsman, and he was undefeatable at books. So in reality, the, uh, the protagonist Gloriana is uh, you know, behaving as a boy and is hidden as a boy. And uh, the character goes from Eton to Oxford to Parliament where she unmasks herself and begins to pass equal rights legislation. So this is the plot line. So Ethelma's Woman Free, uh, which um, you know she wrote in uh, 1893, is a long poem in heroic couplets, and it celebrates the coming end of uh, menstrual cycle. So arguing that menstruation had its Lamarckian origins and prehistoric rapes, Ethelma believed that woman free would shake off this noisome habit. Now, uh, this is almost like wishful thinking uh, and uh, this is, you know, a complete uh, uh, rid of biological aspects and wishful thinking. And her body saved from innervating drain shall lend a newer vigor to the brain. So a woman who is uh, stripped of the process of menstruation will be saving uh, the drain from her body. And this would kind of, uh, re, uh, you know, rejuvenate her body and uh, kind of uh, loan a new kind of vigor and strength to the brain also. Why shall she roam in realms of untold thought, which ages since her shackled inside sought? So once this process is actually stopped, what happens is she will be free. And she will be free to roam in, uh, you know, those areas which were uh, forbidden to her. 
and um, ever since uh, you know historic times and age ages she had been chained or shackled and her instinct had uh, you know sought a freedom but yet she was unable to do that gilman in her land and moving mountain imagine amazon utopias in which women would reproduce spontaneously in a maternal meritocracy so these are concepts which were written during the time so gilman is actually charlotte perkins gilman the american sociologist is writing about a, a kind of an utopian amazon utopia where women had the upper hand and they would reproduce uh, quite spontaneously in uh, uh, an environment which is conducive to maternal uh, you know way around now we'll move on to page number 24 we'll begin with the first para in demanding that women be liberated from menstrual cycle ethelma was anticipating jomain greer now jomain greer is um, an australian and uh, yet ethelma's fantasies were politically and technologically naive and thus ultimately depressing so there is a limit to uh, you know kind of uh, innovating this and uh, so when you consider it it was rather uh, you know disappointing towards the end as sheila robotham writes the dominated can tell stories they can fantasize they can create utopia but they cannot devise a means of getting there they cannot make use of maps plan out the route and calculate the odds so shayla is a british socialist and feminist she says that you know you cannot always plan and the idea continues in amazon's of mary coleridge's poem now mary coleridge is uh, the great grandniece of st coleridge the famous romantic poet and in her poet uh, poem the white women uh written 1900 uh she writes who never bowed their necks beyond the yoke when she refers to the amazons okay so they were creatures of an imagined golden age of the past not models for the future so this is very very clear in their writings now the next para the feminist urge to break away from the yoke of biological femininity also expressed itself as the wish to be male now this is uh, you know almost uh, freudian uh, which uh, came later so when the feminist uh, wish to uh, break away from the biological bondage of femininity it was also a kind of a wish to be male okay so according to mary coleridge's biographer no one so feminine can ever have longed more to be a man in her fantasies again and again and again she takes this part and in her novels it is always a portraits of young men which are attempted from a man's point of view one of olaf schreiner's uh, heroines muses muses means things about how nice it would be to to be a man so both in mary coleridge and olaf schreiner we have heroines who have extreme desires to be a man as if that is the end of it all a series of swash bucklers and mysteries played with the idea of split personality not the split between good and evil that fascinated stevenson and wilde but the split between male purpose and female passivity that reflected feminist conflict so 
this is a very uh, interesting concept of the split personality because the split is actually not really to be considered between good and bad of a person uh, which you know kind of interested uh, writers like stevenson or oscar wilde and so on but the split is actually between the male purpose and uh, the so called uh, female passivity uh, which uh, was uh, reflecting the uh, the ages feminist conflict also in ethel voynich's the glad fly and the baroness orsi's the scarlet pimpernel the sydney cartoon figure drawling fog by day dashing revolutionary by night was revived was revived so uh, what you have to understand is you know um, the uh, so called dandy figure was uh, all of a sudden revived and uh, the chivalry and the romance was actually kind of uh, regenerated the revolutionary energies of women novelists are entirely projected onto male figures who are androgynous in the sense that their disguise is to appear effeminate now androgynous meaning um, uh, when you have uh, partly male and female uh, characteristics so the revolutionary energies of the women novelists were kind of projected onto male figures during this uh, you know period when uh, you know uh, they were considered to be androgynous in the sense that um, uh, they would uh, you know appear effeminate uh, despite their male and female aspects so like their creators these heroes survive by concealing their real strength and purposes and passing as limp and ineffectual so when uh, the heroes are conjured up in novels they will not really show their real strength or their real intention but they will actually kind of camouflage and pretend to be very limp and uh, you know not at all effective now in the third para their sense of physical oppression and sexual exploitation led feminists to identify with the prostitute a figure who has always aroused the sympathies however covert of women novelists so what you have to understand is see the feeling of uh, being physically oppressed and uh, being exploited on uh, the front of uh, sexual satisfaction and so on it led the feminists to a uh, kind of uh, sympathize and identify with the figure of the prostitute okay so mrs gaskell and dina craig had defended her so um when they wrote uh, their novel they kind of you know um dealt with uh, the poorer strata and through contagious diseases campaign women argued and petitioned for her so during the contagious disease campaign uh we see that uh, the issue of the uh, the prostitute is very much uh, discussed and debated and people are put, uh, petitioning for her one important effect of uh, the contagious diseases campaign was that it gave women an excuse to use some of the sexual vocabulary previously reserved for men so earlier it was not considered to be cool for women to use uh, such vocabulary but um, with uh, the campaign coming into uh, the focus what happened is women got an excuse to use it how could a lady refuse to call a spade a spade when that utensil was digging the grave of her sisters now this is a very interesting statement that is how could a woman 
refuse uh, to admit something when that particular uh, you know um, admission itself was kind of you know uh, creating problem by uh, you know ending or uh, rather ending the freedom of um, you know her sisters so mrs butler wrote to an mp now mrs butler is judith butler and uh, she wrote to an mp who had questioned the propriety of women's attendance at debates on the act so uh, see um, this was in connection uh, connection with uh, you know this prostitutes uh, you know contagious disease uh, um, campaign when josephine elizabeth butler she writes uh, to uh, the mp and she says i quote at the very base of the act lies the false and poisonous idea that women that is ladies have nothing to do with this question and ought not to hear of it much less meddle with it i cannot forget the misery the injustice and the outrage which have fallen upon women simply because we stood aside when men felt our presence to be painful unquote now uh, this is very crystal clear josephine elizabeth butler says that being uh, the inactive person of society will create problems so if uh, you know injustice or misery or outrages uh, befalling women it is because women have stood aside and did not act lest they uh, you know hurt the uh, the egos of men so we'll move on to page number 25 first para the feminists however were fervent associationists and they dissipated their energies in many causes so um see the feminists were very very proactive and uh, they associated with many many uh, you know uh, other associations and they spent a lot of energy following many of these causes also in 1895 one feminist journal shafts advertised meetings of the women vegetarian union now see this is just a beginning i'll tell you the entire list they took part uh, in you know meetings like women vegetarian union uh that is uh they talked about uh the food habit uh and reforming it and so on and the anti vivi section uh league uh they actually talked about experimenting on animals using them as guinea pig and so on the anti spitting association very interesting the psychic society the anti tobacco society the anti narcotic league and the anti cage bird society so, so many other uh different factions are working together they knew very clearly what they were against but only vaguely what they were for so this is the crux of the argument or what we call as a thesis statement of that particular paragraph elaine showalter says that uh the women the feminist uh, you know novelists they knew what they were against they knew what was oppressive but they did not know what uh, you know they really stood for what were they advocating they were against something but what did they really want that particular aspect is actually missing the feminist writers were engaged in the kind of quarrel that according to yates leads to rhetoric but not poetry so um this is what uh, you know showalter is telling us um the women writers they uh, wrote uh, in a kind of uh, quarrel and it was leading to rhetoric or logical reasoning but it did not actually create uh, or you know result in poetry thus the writers of this period olive shrina sara grand mrs creek 
and uh, Beatrice Harridan, Ethel Voynich, Mary Coleridge, Minnie Mural uh, Dovey, and George Egerton have not fared well with posterity. So this is like a judgment. Sarah Grant is actually, um, you know, uh, the one who brought in the concept of new woman in fiction. Okay, and Beatrice Harridan is the one who uh, advocated women's rights, and Ethel Voynich is uh, a revolutionary by spirit, and uh, many Muriel uh, Dowie is actually a British writer. Okay, so um, Showalter says that, you know, because of their approach, because of the way in which they wrote as a quarrel, uh, they didn't, it did only result in rhetoric but not poetry and that's why they did not do well uh, with posterity. With the passage of time, their works were not considered to be uh, quite up to the mark. Now, in the second para, there are many signs that women writers were troubled by the new tensions in their role. Their lives show an increase in psychosomatic illnesses and stress diseases afflictions that contributed to the decline in their literary productivity. Now see, the feminist writers, they had a lot of tension in the role that they played as a feminist writer. Okay, And their uh, personal lives uh, kind of uh, showed an increasing problem, especially psychosomatic illness. Psychosomatic illness is not, uh, you know, real physical illness, but illness which is actually almost physical because of the working of your mind. Your mind creates illness. That is psychosomatic. And in stress diseases, uh, you have um, agitation, uh, tensions and so on. And uh, it will affect your lifestyle. So all these afflictions, problems, uh, contributed to the decline in their literary productivity. So they were not really productive because of their personal limitations. Whereas the invalidism of feminine novelists was often a strategic evasion of the feminine role or a power tactic as George Eliot recognized when she had Rosamund Wincy threaten her father. You would not like me to go into a consumption as Arabella Holly did. Now, uh, this is very important because feminine novelists, um, they did try to write well. But sometimes uh, they kind of avoided, evasion means avoided the feminine role or um, even emphasizing the power tactic or acknowledging the power tactic. And feminist invalidism seems to have been an evasion of work. So they avoided a particular kind of feminist, you know, uh, a kind of writing which showed the real power. So in invalidism, they were kind of avoiding the work that they were supposed to have written. Even freed from the pressures of the three-decker. Three-decker means the three-decker novel. I told you the, uh, the different sequels written together, the three uh, collections. Now, many women writers of this period found it difficult to finish their books or to write more than one. Now, even if they wanted, they could not establish, you know, uh, writing uh, several books or more than even one book. In this generation, Female suicide became conspicuous for the first time. The suicides included Eleanor Marx, Charlotte Mew, Adela Nicholson and Amy Lewy. So um, Eleanor Marx is actually um, an English-born uh, daughter of Karl Marx. Okay, She was a social activist and uh, literary translator. She was, uh, you know, involved in an unhappy personal relationship and uh, she uh, kind of, you know, committed suicide by using poison and she did this at an age of 43, which was really shocking. 
okay now in the case of uh, the suicide of charlotte mew charlotte mew is uh, you know um, a quite an important person that is uh, you know to be reckoned with and so also adela nicholson or amy lewy so um, all these people they were english poets uh, british poets and novelists and uh, they did not write under their own name now adela nicholson for example wrote under the pseudonym lawrence hope a male name and amy lewy uh she was a poet and novelist and the problem with her was that she suffered from depression and um, a physical problem like deafness she couldn't hear properly and at the end we see that uh, all of them they commit suicide okay so uh, the confused aspirations and dreams and the claustrophobic femaleness of the feminist aesthetic are most suggestively embodied in the life and works of olishrina now um see uh the feminist uh, aesthetic is uh, to represent whatever they want to suggest to society so that involves a lot of confused aspiration and dreams of uh, these uh, protagonists and also the claustrophobic femaleness it's not like uh, the main uh, the female characters enjoy uh, the femaleness of themselves they find it rather uh, innovating and confining and uh, this is actually uh, seen in the works of olishrina a free thinker marked to the marrow of her bones with the calvinism of her missionary parents a disciple of darwin will and spencer who floated in seas of sentimentality a dedicated writer who would never finish a book a feminist who hated being a woman a maternal spirit who never became a mother everything about her life is a paradox so she writes uh, to a certain level but what ha- really happens in her life is actually quite the contrary the opposite so in her ambivalence her self deception her psychosomatic illnesses we can read the distress signals of a transitional generation transitional meaning it's changing from one to the next and claustrophobia the sense of confinement in a space too small for comfort and growth is a central image for olivrina okay so uh, according to her women characters they feel a kind of confinement or uh, you know a, a feeling that they are in a enclosed space which uh, is not congenial to their comfort or uh, even growth also so uh, the women become stunted if confined to such a space her womanhood with its compelling inner space was a haven to which she made cyclic withdrawals and from which she made sporadic efforts to escape now um, this is a special feature so when it came to her womanhood she would uh, you know love to be alone and she used to make a uh, cyclic you know repeated uh, regular withdrawals from uh, busy life and uh, she preferred uh, you know such attempts to escape from uh the busy humdrum and uh you know um complications of life as such so with that we will stop uh, for the time being thank you so much for your attention we will continue the next class